Welcome back to another episode of the official Sasta podcast. Now, as you all know, you can get in touch with myself on Snapchat at H Stebbings and the main man, Jason Lemkin, on Twitter at Jason LK. Now, for the show today, I'm super excited to welcome an individual who's enjoyed no less than four IPOs in his investing career. Taking the hot seat today is David Juan. David is a general partner at Technology Crossover Ventures, and some of his investments include the likes of Facebook, LinkedIn, Exact Target, acquired by Salesforce, Splunk, and many more incredible companies. And he also sits on the board at Acton, AppNexus, Merkle, and SiteMinder. And he's also an advisor to Pinterest. Prior to Technology Crossover Ventures, David had stints at JP Morgan and Bain and & Company. However, enough from me, so it's now time to hand over to the main man, David Juan, General Partner at Technology Crossover Ventures. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. David, it's such a pleasure to have you on the official Sasta podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, likewise. Great to be on. Now, I want to start by hearing about you and how you made your way into the world of SaaS investing. So what was the move for you and what was the motive behind it? Yeah, look, I um, I was fortunate to be an early employee of a successful startup. And um, once we sold and, and got uh, acquired by a large uh, corporation, I uh, was looking for something new and uh, also lucky to have a, a great friend, Amit Shah, who happened to be in the venture industry. And he, he kind of plugged me into uh, the notion of venture investing. So got into VC in 2000, uh, right about the time to perfect time to catch a falling knife, um, which was obviously right in the midst of um, the beginning of uh, the first modern tech-led recession. Really tough time, but learned a lot. And then uh, more recently, uh, in 2005, joined TCV. You know, in terms of SaaS investing specifically, at JP Morgan Partners, the first uh, venture firm that I was a part of, it was just broad software investing. When I got to TCV back in 2005, I think one of the big issues was um, how to think about SaaS companies, right? So, in the software world, you had a bunch of license and maintenance models, which were starting to slow because of some of the secular trends to SaaS. And then you had these big guys like SAP and Oracle that were kind of rolling over the horizontal market with their sweet plays. But at the time, the SaaS players were relatively small, and and very few of them showed any type of profitability. So a big part of you know getting up to speed on SaaS at the time um, was really understanding you know the long-term profitability models of SaaS and and you know ultimately getting comfortable to taking interim bets on on revenue multiples. So that's that's kind of what got got TCV there, and and um, we've been active SaaS investors ever since. I'm really intrigued. You said about revenue multiples there, and we saw obviously the massive drop in public markets. Uh, when I was actually at SaaS at the event last year, and it was a rather hectic occasion for most SaaS founders there. Um, but I'm in to see how you've seen the evolution of revenue multiples in public markets and how that's affected early stage SaaS companies throughout your time in venture. Well, there's been two moves, really. I think, um, you know, kind of 05 to probably more recently, kind of 2012 to 2014, there's been there's been this comfort around public market investors around SaaS multiple, around revenue multiple. So I think in the initial stages, the, the, the first few SaaS IPOs, there really need to be a lot of empirical proof that over time that these revenue multiples were going to translate into earnings multiples. Um, I, you know, that has changed quite a bit over the course of the last, call it 10, 12 years as 
public market investors, um, while they they like both revenue multiples and profit multiples, um, they're starting to get much more comfortable on, on on revenue multiples being a forward indicator of future profitability. Um, and, and so, so I think that's one big movement. I think the second big movement um, is more recently. I think this is what you're referring to. Is look, you know, two years ago, the public market, as the private market was, was growth at all costs. I think as there's been volatility in the public markets, the emphasis placed on growth to now economic growth to potentially profitability has really shifted the mindset of the public markets. The public markets tend to be a forward look on the private markets as many private investors or almost all private investors really are investing in private companies to ultimately get an exit through an IPO to public market investors or to sell to oftentimes publicly traded incumbents. And so as the fashion and the the sensibilities of public investors have changed from growth at all costs to much more of a balance between growth and profitability, so too is that flowing through the, the private markets. Now, I want you to tell me that I'm wrong on something here, but I get really frustrated by the emphasis on profitability that's being placed today, which, uh, you know, fine for me to say, I'm sure, uh, not being a big investor. But I feel that the venture industry obviously predicated on the big wins. How do you balance the very big wins with this insane vision and drive for profitability now, in many cases, over the growth that was once requested? Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, Harry, and, and I don't disagree at all. And um, I'd love to, I'd love to contradict you here to make for good dialogue. Oh, fantastic! But, uh, no, I'm pleased. <laughs> I don't disagree, but but look, look um, Silicon Valley is 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 not for moderation, right? We swing from one end of the pendulum to the other, and so you know, two years ago is growth at all costs, despite really terrible economics, to profitability at all costs, and reality. Ali is um, technology is a growth industry. It's a category leadership game. It's an aspirational industry. And so there is, you know, really prudent and thoughtful approaches that don't necessarily require profitability. And so what I mean by that is if you have really strong unit economics and you're investing a dollar a day for, for, for many multiples of dollars tomorrow, and you have the cash balance in the balance sheet to support that and control your destiny, get your business to profitability, it may make, it may make no sense to go profitability to go profitable today. This mindset of, of forward investing for category leadership for the big win, I think makes a lot of sense as long as over time the unique economics are are strong. And the second is you control your destiny as it relates to being fully financed and having the adequate cash balance sheet. And you know, the world in 2014 was all about, hey, let's forward invest for category leadership, almost despite the fact that the unit economics weren't weren't good and the fact that many of these companies were assuming that they could always raise bigger and bigger rounds. That actually, that strategy actually um, can work, but but I think it's flawed for many reasons, most notably because if the market changes, you no longer control your destiny and you're, you're put in a tough position. Likewise, I think the other piece of it is you got every other SaaS competitor following that exact same playbook. Whereas now, today, where there is a much stronger emphasis on profitability, if anything, if you take a more moderated approach where it's a balance between profit and growth, and maybe you're slightly negative or maybe you're significantly negative, but but strong cash balance sheet, strong economics, your your efforts to win the market are going to be that much more differentiated. You're going to be that much more successful. And so if anything, now is the time, again, as long as you control your economics, as long as you control your destiny as it relates to the cash balance, 
to consider, you know, being really aggressive. This is, you know, this is essentially the exact target playbook in 2009, 2010, when the sky was falling, um, Scott Dorsey did the opposite. You know, we were fortunate to be a part of that and see that play out. And just in general, I think, you know, again, if under those two parameters, if you control your economics and you control your balance sheet now could be actually the absolute right time to be a little bit more aggressive as it relates to you know, forward investing do you translate that uh, aggressiveness in terms of investing into your own investing thesis moving from the side of the operators to your side or do you keep a relatively stable cadence throughout downturns and upturns yeah a little bit of both um so charlie munger has this great saying it went something like what we care about are the microeconomics of the business what we have to put up as with as investors are the macroeconomics trends. And so likewise, I think great companies get formed in in all parts of the cycle, bear cycle, bull cycle, somewhere in between. The thing that changes is is the valuations and the effective multiples you're paying. So it's a little bit of both, which is we're, we're active through all cycles. Um, but as multiples come into what is or more kind of historical norms, like if you if you read the, the local press, the sky's falling and 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 um, the world is terrible. The reality is valuation multiples are kind of coming back into historical norms. They're certainly not troughs. But as as valuations come back into historical norms, then I love that. I, I can I can invest in companies and take bets on growth and rather than having to assume that, you know, really high multiples remain really high when I exit. So yeah, I, I have gotten quite a bit more aggressive both in our public investing activity as well as our private investing activity, because I think it's a uh, it's a really productive time to both start and grow businesses, but then also to invest in them. And I, I want to touch on one element of the industry, which which I'd say you're definitely a specialist in, this kind of consumerization of the enterprise. In terms of consumer products now, um, where do you think the business model for products in the enterprise industry is going? I, I recently... Uh, had Nakul on from Lightspeed, Nakul Mandan, and he said, you know, the consumerization of the product's over. It's now time for consumerization of the business model. To what extent do you agree with this? Yeah, I, I, I think that's a well-stated well uh, thesis. So the consumerization of enterprise products has been going on for the last 10 years. It started out with SolarWinds and some others where the general insight is customers want to use the same quality and elegance and simplicity of product in their work life as they do in their in their consumer life. And so Oracle is not the hallmark of product excellence. It's more Facebook and Google. Um, and, I, and I think that's been really powerful. And that's opened the market to much lower price point, high velocity models, right? And so I think I think the, the, the consumerization of products is there. I think we're kind of halfway between the consumerization of go-to-markets or certainly the merging of go-to-markets where rather than purely an outside direct uh, sales force, you may have a freemium front end that, that gets the product into an enterprise. And then as the enterprise increases adoption, you can increase monetization through an inside sales and an outside sales and kind of an enterprise class sales um, effort. And I think there are very few companies that actually have, have been able to do that, but certainly ClickTech and Splunk and, and some others have, have shown the way. I think the really interesting the really interesting innovation that's occurring in this intersection between consumer and enterprise really is around the monetization models themselves. Rather than just selling pure kind of SaaS subscription licenses, you're starting to see a lot of um, SaaS companies move into things like payments and take a piece of the, the dollar volume of the gross merchandise value flowing through. And that at times can be a huge portion of the, of the revenue base. So companies like Shopify and MindBody and 
at Folio actually make quite a bit of money off of payments, not their SAP su- subscription. You have other companies that that own the workflow, and I know you've spent some time with Mel like at Canva, where you know there's a really powerful content monetization model. Um, even further, uh, there's things like media and demand generation, and so not only do you provide front office. SaaS software, but you also help acquire customers. So you get into the media and data side. So I think I think that's all playing forth. The next evolution of that I think is even more interesting is as SaaS companies start thinking of themselves almost like consumer platform companies. So you know the traditional model of software is you build a product, you hire a sales rep, that sales rep sells a certain amount of revenue. And then to scale revenue, you just have to scale sales reps and try and do that in a reasonably efficient manner. So you have this very linear growth curve. These new platform models are interesting in the sense that you build out this customer base, and that's linear. But as you reach scale on the customer base, you can start integrating third-party applications. And those third-party applications do two things. They provide incredible barriers to entry as now you become almost like an uh, industry standard for your customer set, and third-party applications just work better with your product. And so there's huge barriers to entry and huge moats that you're creating. But the second piece is to the extent that you either directly or or indirectly take a cut of the revenues of those third parties, you start seeing non-linear growth in your revenues. And so, you know, companies like Atlassian and Slack are really pushing on this hard. And, you know, Salesforce has been doing this for quite some time. And and those kind of SaaS business models don't look like the SaaS business models of old. They start looking like an Apple or a, or a Facebook or, a, you know, a, a Google Play type model. And, and I think that's really exciting. Uh, I'm intrigued because we've spoken before, uh, me and you, just about marketers and how they'll be affected by these trends. And so I'm intrigued to hear what the trends are that will allow marketers to engage with consumers in a, in a more native, less obtrusive way with this kind of linkage of... Uh, front office SaaS. Yeah, I I think the um, intersection of of marketing tech, you know, kind of this front office SaaS with consumer platforms like a Facebook and a and a Google and some others is is really powerful. So let me give you a conceptual context and then a couple specific examples. So the conceptual context is marketing tech really is really serving the end marketer. So it's a brand, and a brand knows a certain amount about its customer base, um, who they are, where they ship their product to, maybe what what products they've sold to them, and that's really powerful. And then you know. Obviously, when they visited their website, that's a huge sign of intent. But they, but it's a really small, it's a really small snapshot on who that consumer is and how they spend their time. And then you have these massive platforms like Facebook and, to lesser ex- extent, Google, where you know Facebook in the U.S. they they see I, I think it's like twenty to thirty percent of a consumer's smartphone time. That's an amazing footprint of, of interactions. On, on Facebook Messenger and WeChat, the messages flowing through from consumers to consumers is three times that of the peak global SMS volume. So they have this massive kind of consumer engagement and consumer understanding. When you marry those two things together, what you have is all of a sudden you have this incredible understanding of a consumer, and then you actually have the channel in which those consumers engage with each other and then brands and, and, and marketers over time. And I think I think that intersection is really powerful. So the two kind of really tangible examples is, you know, think about personalization, right? Marketers have been talking about personalization for the last two decades. Um, you know, the, there was a big wave when I started investing in 2000. There was a big wave two years ago. There'll be a big wave probably another four years. 
it's kind of this natural notion of harnessing everything you know about a customer and and using that to better serve ads, better better serve products, and really you know personalize the consumer experience for higher conversion rates. Really kind of pragmatically, but better brand affinity, better experience. Well, the reality in in, in a marketing tech context alone is you really know very little about your consumer compared to the overall kind of consumer engagement on the web or on mobile. So REI, for example, they may try and personalize your experience, but even at a big a merchant as REI is, a consumer spends very little time on the REI website alone. Now they spent, like I, like I mentioned, they spent a lot of time on places like Facebook and Pinterest and the rest. And so if you can really kind of leverage this web scale data into your personalization efforts. You can have web scale personalization, which is going to be dramatically much more powerful, right? The data set's much larger. That's one really tangible example, kind of more of a futuristic example, right? As you bring on all this great first party marketer data into platforms like Facebook Messenger and you and various different chat-based uh, technologies, and you add these massive AI machine learn, learning infrastructures that all these companies are investing in, then you create really, you can create some really powerful, really strong experiences, consumers that number one, brands know who those consumers are. They're talking them in context of, of what they've done on the web and in, in those specific platforms. And they ultimately can, can provide a much better you know, hybrid or fully automated experience that can, can totally change how a consumer interacts with the brand and therefore how marketers can go acquire customers. Now, I do want to I do want to touch on brand, but first we're going to jump into the quick fire round. Uh, sure. So, so 60 seconds per answer, uh, 60 seconds faster. Ready to go? I'll, I'll do my best on 60 seconds. I'm sure you'll do brilliantly. <laughs> so DR marketing, over-reliance or healthy relationship? Uh, you got to start with DR because that's the low-hanging fruit, but ultimately when you scale to you know, 50, 100, 200 million, you, you've got to start pushing into brand. DR is fulfilling demand. You got to start creating demand through brand. And Green, awareness. Greenfield opportunities in SaaS, where are you excited for? You know, I think the, the, they're not necessarily greenfield, but I think all the movements in AI and machine learning will provide unique and powerful interfaces that will uh, create a new generation of, of SaaS applications in existing markets. I think you'll start seeing in the horizontal markets first and then in verticals. I think those are really interesting opportunities. Uh, SaaS founder you most respect and admire, and why? You know, I've worked with a lot of great SaaS founders. Uh, the one that's way up there is Scott Dorsey um, for a couple reasons. Uh, there are very few guys who can manage to both growth and and uh, efficiency. For the first, you know, call it seven, eight years of uh, Exact Heart's life, they got to 60, 70 million revenues on 6 million in primary capital, so incredible, effic- incredible efficiency. And then when Scott saw the opportunity to go win the market, he doubled down, got really aggressive, raised another, call it 150 million in capital roughly, and then won the, the market cloud category and, and obviously went on to great success. So very few people can do that. The guy is the mo- one of the most humble and caring guys in the world, and it, it's it, it's seen through the incredible orange culture they created at Xactory. And so, you know, for those reasons, um, his leadership uh, and, and the team they assembled, I think he's one of the strongest uh, SaaS founders I've I've worked with. And I'm thrilled to say he's actually coming on the show soon. So that's a great one. Um, oh, fantastic! And then let's do biggest takeaway from watching Four Investments IPO. Amazing track record. Biggest takeaway is. Um, 
an IPO is just a financing event, and so it's a it's a highly branded financing event. So don't overthink it. Do it when you're ready. There's no it's not it's not a point of arrival. It's just a milestone along the way. So do it when you're ready and do it at the right time. I do think it, it requires a lot more overhead than people give it credit for. As not just the process of going public itself, but then the earnings calls and managing expectations. I think the, the the third thing is going private does put some additional considerations with how you manage both your capital allocation and your corporate strategy. And so just be aware of that before you kind of take the deep dive. But ultimately, I think it's a really it's a great milestone for these companies. It's a great way of building a, a big independent franchise. And then moving out of the 60 seconds, so not to worry, no time pressure here. I, I, I do have to go back to the data element and the data centricity of SaaS, as we mentioned. Um, obviously more data driven than other industries. So how do you respond to a view that I often get uh, posited to me that SaaS companies are just spreadsheets and all they do is add capital? Yeah, I, I think that's really short-sighted, and I think that's a, re- a religion that's been permeated by investors, unfortunately. I think you know metrics and, and spreadsheets are great. Uh, as a business gets bigger and it gets more complex, you need metrics to, to augment your intuition to really understand how all parts of your business are functioning. That being said, the metrics are a reflection of both customer behavior and your internal operations, not, not the other way around. They aren't the drivers of those. And so you got to be really careful, particularly as you think about growing your business over the course of multiple years. The best example of this happens in sales and marketing. Uh, let's start with marketing first. The, you know, the classic uh, pitfall I always see is, hey, it costs us X dollars to get to a lead, and so we're going to keep scaling those leads forever. The reality is, um, as we just talked about uh, with respect to DR and, and brand, is you know in the early phases, you're just fulfilling demand. That can be very efficient marketing. And then as you scale, you have to build awareness and brand and, and be part of consideration sets. And so you, you step into a much different context where your metrics are going to be quite different. The other side is on the sales operation side, which is, hey, a sales rep is, is producing this much in terms of uh, annual quota, and that, that will continue for forever. As you grow through different scaling points, what you'll see is that your most productive reps, they are living their lives and their careers as well. And so at a certain point in time, usually around three or four years, a really experienced, really productive inside sales rep probably decides that he or she doesn't want to be inside sales rep forever. And so you you bring them into management, you, you, you promote them into different parts of the organization, and all of a sudden you have a productivity hit. So those types of those, that type of complexity as you scale and just the natural course of building a living, breathing organism here that is going out and, and driving financial performance, not the other way around, you just have to be really cognizant of the fact that SaaS businesses aren't spreadsheets. They aren't metrics driven. They can be management of SaaS businesses can be augmented by metrics, but you gotta, you gotta really understand the core drivers at the operations and the customer level uh, in addition to um, having these nice dashboards and spreadsheets. And touch, touching on that humanized element, uh, transitioning kind of inside sales reps to management, they can also go regressively. Uh, and, you know, often I'm told that uh, the initial founding team and the initial employees are not destined to be there for the end journey. Um, however, going back to that humanizing element, how do you, uh, A, feel about that, that they shouldn't always be there for the end journey? And then how do you um, slowly kind of ingratiate them out of the company without showing a lack of respect and gratitude for the loyalty that they've showed in the journey? Yeah, that's a that's a really um, that's tough a really question. tough question. Yeah, um, you, you know, I don't think 
typically the, the guys that we the guys and gals that we work with are first time CEOs um, and first it, and at times first time managers, although that's that's not typically the case. And so let me talk about the CEO because uh, I think that's a good you know, reflection of the overall concept. You know, as founders, they typically know the domain best. They've been thinking about the problem longest. They've been talking to the customers most. And that domain knowledge and the passion and the mission that they add to the business is incredibly powerful. And I think that gives them an unfair right to be successful. Now, if they are first-time founders, then they probably have some experience gaps that um, that they need to fill. But at the end of the day, you know, a CEO, the interesting part about a CEO is his or her responsibility isn't to necessarily run a function, it's to manage a team. And so as long as those those founding CEOs are open to input and open to building a great team around them that has deep functional expertise, I think actually they could be very strong leaders of very large businesses. And, and so it's not surprising to me that some of the biggest category leaders are still run by the founding CEOs. And so we don't have a bias against founding CEOs. If anything, you know, the domain knowledge and the customer industry is a big deal, and, and as well as the internal credibility and, and just Again, the mission and the culture setting aspects of those individuals. Now, we, we, we do, as, as companies scale, they start seeing nonlinear complexity if you don't put the right management and the right infrastructure in place. And so we do want to work with these founding CEOs to build the best teams possible and to create a world-class organization. And as long as, as long as the founding CEOs are cognizant of that or embracing of that, I think, I I think they, I think it works really well. And so for example, preponderance of my investments have been with, with the founding CEO, ultimately they're driving it to, to significant scale. So we may be thinking a little bit differently about the, the, the issue, but, um, no, no, listen, it was more a case of what I'm always told. Um, but, but absolutely fascinating to hear your perspective. And Dave, I can't thank you enough for, for giving up your time today to come on the show so great to chat to you and i really appreciate it yeah likewise thank you for having me harry Really fantastic to hear David's perspective on the fluctuating markets and how he adjusts his investing cadences there. I also want to say a huge thank you to him for introducing me to Scott Dorsey. That really is so kind of him and we cannot wait to have Scott on the show in the coming weeks. And if you love everything Sasta, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hstebbings or you can follow Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK or even head over to the home of Sasta where you can find a whole host of resources including Jason's incredible articles on www www.sasta.com that's s-a-a-s-t-r.com as always we're so grateful for all your support please do always send me your feedback i love to hear it harry at the 20 minute vc.com really i'm so grateful and i look forward to seeing you next week